uh, 49, the end of Genesis 49 and chapter 50, uh, the story of two funerals. Uh, two funerals. It might seem uh, a downbeat way to end on this remarkable story of Joseph. Uh, had it been some kind of secular fairy tale, it would have ended and they lived happily ever after. But instead, we end with a coffin in Egypt. The preacher in Ecclesiastes uh, tells us to take advantage of funerals, to learn wisdom from times of death. It is better, he says, to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Ecclesiastes 7, 2. And when you think about it, how many more sermons at funerals have been blessed by God, have struck home uh, to the conversion of those hearing than, for example, uh, homilies at weddings. Uh, Funerals are a time uh, to take stock, uh, to focus upon life's great issues. And as death approaches, the quality of a person's life is also revealed. Uh, Wesley said, of the early Methodists, our people die well. And it's a mark of, of the, the depth of their Christian commitment that they ended well. Uh, it should be the desire of, of all of us, whatever our age, uh, to finish the race well. But also, and we see this uh, midway in the, the, the chapter 50, it can also be a time uh, when uh, jealousies and, and uh, Petty fears come to the surface. Uh, sometimes uh, these things are, are kept, as it were, under wraps during the, the formalities of the funeral. And then uh, at the end, uh, they surface. And we see that, uh, that uglier side of humanity uh, arising in the passage. Well, we're going to look at uh, this closing section of Genesis, thinking about the difference uh, it makes being a believer at the time of death, when we face uh, life's greatest challenge, uh, either our, our own uh, mortality or the passing of our loved ones. And we're going to think, first of all, of the way in which God's promises transform the attitude of believers to death. God's promises transform the attitude of believers to death. And secondly, how, uh, as we look back on life, God's sovereignty enables us to make sense of life. And then thirdly, how God's victory fills the believer with hope for what lies beyond the grave. God's promises transform the attitude of believers to death. In the background uh, to the whole story of Joseph, uh, there is the, the overarching theme of the covenant. The covenant that God made with Abraham. The promises that God made uh, with Abraham. Uh, God had promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation and that he would give him the land in which he was now merely a sojourner. And in Genesis chapter 17, the Lord comes to Abraham uh, and in this covenant of circumcision... Uh, he gives him the promise that he will have the land around him 
And the only sign that he has at this point is the, the bloody sign of circumcision. God gives a promise and he says that Abraham uh, will have a great posterity, he will become a great nation, that they will inherit this land. And with every covenant there's, there's a promise and there's an obligation also set upon the covenant party. And the obligation to, to Abraham is that he will keep the covenant of circumcision so that not only he uh, but every uh, male born to uh, his succeeding generations will be circumcised. This will be a mark for him and the succeeding generations of the promises of God. And Abraham comes to uh, the end of his days and all he has uh, in the land of Canaan uh, is a, a postage stamp sized parcel of land. Uh, a burial ground. The, the cave uh, in the field of Machpelah near Mamre at which, which he bought and it's this purchase. Uh, the price was paid uh, to uh, Ephron the Hittite for this piece of land. This, this tiny uh, grip on the land of Canaan. Uh, this deposit of what God would later give in fullness. And Jacob finishes well. Jacob finishes strongly because he has laid hold on the promises of God. He finishes as a man believing in the promises of God. When he knows that his end is coming, uh, it's covenant promises that sustain Jacob at the end. Uh, he summons Joseph. We looked at this uh, the last sermon. He su summons Joseph and he makes Joseph solemnly swear uh, not to bury him in Egypt but to carry his remains uh, back to Canaan. Uh, his blessing of Joseph's two sons uh, and his own uh, twelve sons re reflect the fact that Jacob believes the promise that he will be made into a great nation. And not only do we see Jacob acting as a prophet, seeing ahead uh, what will take place in the building of a nation, in the coming of Messiah through the line of Judah, uh, the one to whom the obedience of the nations will be uh, given. We see him as the man of faith, the man finishing his life, laying his hope on the promises of God. And it's that which the writer to the Hebrews uh, picks up uh, when he reflects on the life of Jacob. Uh, it's the close of his life uh, that he reflects on. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Uh, Hebrews eleven twenty one. 21. Uh, now, Jacob is about to die and he has explicit instructions for his burial. He's to be buried with his fathers. He's to be buried in this specific plot of ground. This ground that was bought by Abraham from Ephron the Hittite. And it's not, it's not a desire born out of some misguided devotion to the dead. It's a conviction that this act of being buried in Canaan will symbolize that he is in a line of promise. He is an inheritor of the promise and those coming after him also must look to the promise of God. There's a bit of poignancy also uh, in 
the, the fact that he will be buried with Leah and not Rachel. Remember, Rachel was buried near Bethlehem. Uh, it's Leah, the unloved wife, with whom he'll be buried in death because this is where Abraham and Isaac, the patriarchs, were buried. And then uh, we have this uh, very graphic description of how Jacob comes to his end. He pulls himself up into his bed and he breathes his last. What a way to go! <laughs> he is in complete command of all his faculties and uh, he simply uh, gets into bed again, pulls up the sheets and having said farewell to his sons, he slips into eternity. Now, belief in the resurrection uh, is not as clearly seen in the Old Testament as it is in the New. It's one of these doctrines that's seen in the fullness of light in the New Testament. But nevertheless, uh, it is in the Old Testament, and the men of faith uh, in the Old Testament anticipated a blessed resurrection. Uh, you have glimpses of that here and there. Uh, for example, uh, the psalmist, uh, Psalm 49 acknowledges no human being can redeem another from Sheol, uh, or the grave. Sheol is the common fate, he says, of the wise and the foolish. But this hope, this hope of redeeming from Sheol, is located uh, in the, the ones spoken of in Isaiah, in his prophecy of a servant. Uh, the one the New Testament identifies as Jesus Christ, who pours his soul out as a guilt offering, yet rises uh, and is glorified. Isaiah 53, 12, after his atoning death, he prolongs his days, he sees his seed. And so we're not to think that Jacob's hope was simply in a piece of land that would be inherited by those coming after him. Uh, he sees beyond the grave to a blessed hope, even though dimly. Jacob ends in this remarkable way. And it's a wonderful thing, is it not, to come to the end of one's life uh, in a clear-headed way as Jacob is. To die peacefully as Jacob dies. To be surrounded by, by family as Jacob uh, does. But nevertheless, these circumstances aren't granted to everyone. Uh, some of us will die, perhaps, and we will have our mental faculties clouded by dementia. Uh, some of us may die after a season of prolonged pain and illness. Uh, some of us may die alone, without friends or family to comfort us at the end. <coughs> But no matter the circumstances of our death, the one important thing is that we are laying hold of the promises of God, as Jacob was laying hold of the promises of God. And for us, as believers on this side of the cross and the resurrection, these come shining bright. They come in neon letters. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And this is the great issue. It's a great issue for anyone who is not a Christian. How will you end? How will your days come to an end? Will you be laying hold of the promise of God that we, if we are trusting in Jesus, will be raised to a glorious new life? It's a Christian's hope. 
It's for those who are sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, inheritors of the promise, but only for those who are laying hold of that promise. And so the challenge to us is, is that my hope? Do I have an eternal hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Am I trusting him? Am I laying hold of the promises of God to everlasting life? It's that covenant promise that sustains uh, a family when a loved one dies. Notice that there's none of the artificial bravado that we come uh, across so often today at Jacob's funeral. There was no instruction given to the mourners to wear bright clothes and not to appear sad. Uh, there was no pretense that this was a time for trading uh, cheerful uh, reminiscences about the dead. This was a time of solemn mourning, as it should be at any funeral. It was a recognition that the, the last and great enemy had been faced. It was a recognition that here was one taken from this scene of time. Death is always uh, a terrible thing. And Joseph acknowledged this, and Joseph wept over his father and kissed his father. And there followed a, a time of elaborate mourning. Part of this, of course, was because of Egyptian tradition. Uh, Forty days were required for embalming, and then 30 days I think that's the way it would have gone, 40 days and then 30 rather than 70 following the embalming. But the 70 days was the 70 days of mourning for a king. And so here is this obscure uh, tribal uh, headsman, now elevated to the position, the status of a king and mourned in Egypt, given the full 70 days of mourning. And then Joseph makes his request to Pharaoh that he might honour his father, that he might keep the, the promise that he made to his father, that he would not bury him in Egypt, but would take him down to Canaan. And Pharaoh agrees, and there is this amazing movement of people. And Moses takes some time uh, to describe the numbers that went uh, down, to, well, we think down, uh, I suppose it was up, up to Canaan. <coughs> All Pharaoh's officials were there. The royal and the civic dignitaries, they were all there. All of Joseph's household, all the brothers. And there were chariots and there were horsemen accompanying this. Uh, and Moses remarks, it was a very large company. And there they laid him in the piece of ground that represented the future, the, grave, uh, the graveyard in the field of Machpelah that had been given, or that, that had been purchased by Abraham from Ephron the Hittite so long ago. And there, again, there was no fake joy, but there was loud and bitter lamentation so that the surrounding peoples commented that this was the Egyptians making their lamentation. Now, remember who is reading this, first of all. This is the people of the Exodus uh, that are reading Moses' account of the, the funeral of Jacob, the great patriarch. And if you were one of those reading this for the first time, uh, surely this would resonate. Here was 
a movement from Egypt to Canaan uh, that foreshadowed uh, the much greater uh, movement out of Egypt at the Exodus. Similar, but also a contrast, because when Moses would lead the people out of Egypt, uh, he would not be accompanied by uh, dignitaries and horsemen, but would be pursued uh, by the army of Pharaoh. And this grand funeral procession, uh, this exaltation uh, to kingly status of this Middle Eastern tribal leader is also pointing us to something far greater than the exodus under Moses. Pointing us to that day when the nations will hail a greater son of Jacob as their king, a son of Judah that has been promised, uh, who will lead his people out in a new exodus, and the peoples will give him their homage. It's pointing to Jesus, the fulfillment of the ages. Well, families who have been in tension, as we said earlier, often manage to hold things together during the formalities of a funeral. Then after the funeral is over, the cracks can begin to appear. And that's the case with Joseph's brothers. They begin to fear that Joseph will settle old scores. They fear that he hasn't really forgiven them uh, and that he will embark on uh, uh, his own revenge. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us, they say, and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Now, there are no grounds for their fears. They've had 17 years of being with uh, their younger brother to know that he is well disposed towards them. But they're not yet rid of their guilt. It's still nagging away at them, and they're fearing the worst from Joseph. Uh, they're behaving with fear rather than with faith, uh, to the extent that they even uh, they make up a message from their father. Now, whether they uh, make it in the form of a letter or send it uh, verbally, uh, we're not sure. But their fear extends to, to fabricating this, this message from Joseph. Uh, the implication is that they, they reckon that Joseph will, will honour uh, the memory of Jacob will, and will, uh, do, will fulfil any of their father's wishes. It's interesting that the behaviour of the brothers is, is the kind of thing which often uh, besets uh, Christian people. Uh, we can sometimes be set by our, our own fear and guilt and begin to wonder, has God really forgiven me? Uh, have my sins really been dealt with? And a refusal to believe in God's forgiveness and God's promise can, can make a wreckage of our lives. We can live in fear uh, rather than in security. And when those fears surface as they did in the brothers. We need to come to Jesus in the Word and calm our troubled consciences. We need to claim the promises of the Bible that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. The brothers have these nagging doubts, this guilt surfacing, and they can't believe that Joseph can continue in his forgiving attitude. They give this fake message uh, from Jacob uh, and Joseph weeps that they should 
think along these lines. And then they come and they cast themselves at his feet as his slaves. Notice that in response to, to this, this misjudgment of his attitude, Joseph gives three solid theological reasons why uh, he is not going to settle any old scores, why he does forgive them from the heart. Uh, the first of these is that he is not God, that justice belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When we have injustice done against us, uh, we are taught to leave the righting of these wrongs to God, not to take matters into our own hands, but to leave the issues to God. But secondly, and, and most significantly for the book of Genesis, he recognizes that God is sovereign, even in the evil actions of his brothers. In fact, verse 20 is perhaps the key verse in the whole of the Joseph story. Verse 20, if you look at that in uh, your Bibles, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, God meant it for good. God is sovereign over all things, and there is nothing that lies outside uh, the scope of his wise rule. This is, this is a truth that Joseph had a clear grasp on, and it sustained him. God is in control of all things, and yet he is not the author of evil. We ask, how can this be? And the answer lies in Joseph's response here to his brothers. We have to recognize that uh, in any event, there are two causes. Uh, there's a first cause, which is the Lord God. He has ordained whatsoever comes to pass without exception. God's ordination. In the case of the wrongs that Joseph suffered at the hands of his brothers, God was the first cause. God ordained that Joseph's brothers should sell him into slavery. God ordained that Joseph should be troubled by Potiphar's wife, that she should continually uh, seek to seduce him. God ordained that Joseph be thrown into prison. God ordained that Joseph be forgotten by the cupbearer. All of these things were ordained by God. But within that ordaining, there were those people who actually did the actions. They, we see, are the second cause. Uh, it was Joseph's brothers who treated him badly and sold him as a slave. It was Potiphar's wife who was so wicked. It was the cupbearer that was so self-absorbed that he forgot his promise to Joseph. Each one of them was the, the, the direct cause of what happened. And they all acted freely. See, God, in ordaining whatever comes to pass, has also ordained our freedom. People act wickedly because they're wicked, not because God forces them to do bad things. 
And yet, the wonder is, God is able to use even wicked actions for good. And as far as you and I are concerned, if we are Christians, God is working together all things, uh, good events, bad events, just events, unjust events, for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 is the great New Testament postscript to the story of Joseph. Genesis 5.20 is the key uh, to all that happens uh, in Joseph's life. God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He is the first cause. But people are the direct cause. And they remain accountable to God for their actions. Now, another helpful example is in the New Testament, in the case of the crucifixion and the role that Judas had in the death of the Lord Jesus. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and he proclaims to the people that this man, that is Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. So there you have it. There is God's ordination. God himself was the the first cause in Jesus being handed over uh, for crucifixion. But Peter goes on. uh, And with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Uh, The people in front of Peter are responsible along with Judas, for the fact that Jesus was handed over, was nailed to the cross. They are responsible. They are accountable before God. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And so this is Joseph's great insight into the way that his life was working out. Every detail of his life, Joseph's, Joseph understands, was ordered and directed by a loving father. Joseph is not going to limit God's ordering of his life, God's providential control of his life, to the nice bits. He doesn't say God's providence was uh, being delivered from prison at just the right time. God's providence wasn't just being elevated to being the second in uh, status in the land of Egypt. Everything, the good and the bad, Uh, the the ill and the well, all parts of his experience were ordained by God. God's providence was all-encompassing. Evil as well as good was controlled by God and intended for his blessing. His brothers couldn't see that. Uh, In the midst of their scheming, uh, they didn't see that there was another greater plan unfolding, gracious and sure. So here's the lesson for us. Here's the lesson from Joseph's story. Here's the takeaway lesson, if you like. So committed is God to his chosen ones that he will not allow anything to derail his purpose to bless us, that we might be fruitful through his creative power. And so great is that power that it can enfold even the evil things that others perpetrate against us. This is the doctrine of providence in relation to believers. This is Romans 8.28. 
God works all things together for good. For whom? For those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. And this is hugely practical. This isn't obscure theology. This is bread and butter Christianity. It helps us live well. When we are discouraged by bad things happening, it helps us to remind, it reminds us that God has not abandoned us. Uh, things have not run outside his control. God is using even the severe circumstances that we're going through uh, for our good. Now, none of us have had to endure uh, the kind of rough handling that Joseph endured in Egypt. And if Joseph can testify to the goodness of God in every aspect of his life, then uh, we are called to do the same. And secondly, it keeps us from being bitter and resentful. This is the practical application here. Uh, the, the brothers think that Joseph's going to be mad with them. He's going to get mean with them. He's going to settle scores. Joseph is not mad or mean because he understands the providence of God in relation to the evil things that they did uh, against him. Uh, we too can find it easier to forgive others uh, when they ask our forgiveness, when we realize that God has been using even their malice, even their wickedness uh, against us. All of that has been under the divine control of God. And if not now, then later on we'll work out for our good and for God's glory. It's a powerful lesson. And it was what kept Joseph sweet and not sour in the midst of his trials. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. And the third uh, lesson uh, that Joseph had learned is that it is right to repay evil, not with evil, but with good. And so he continues, so then don't be afraid, I will provide for you and for your children. And he assured them, reassured them, and spoke kindly to them. Uh, rather than simply saying, let's uh, forget about it all, uh, he goes this next mile and promises to provide for them and for the next generation. God's providence then uh, makes sense of our lives. When we look back on a life that maybe is uh, marked by trials and tribulations, God's providence makes sense of that. enables us to be forgiving and to uh, keep from bitterness. And then finally, God's victory gives hope for the believer's future. Uh, it's interesting that the last section covers a long period of time. Uh, there are over 50 years passed over very quickly. 50 years before the death of Joseph at 110 years old. Years of steady, quiet commitment. Years when Joseph continued in his faith in God's covenant promises. Believing all that God had said uh, to his forefathers. Understanding that even although he had been given an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife and had sons that had never been in Canaan, Egypt was not his home 
Neither was Egypt the home of Ephraim and Manasseh. There was another home, and that land was Canaan. And Joseph passed on that knowledge uh, to his family. During uh, the, the trip that we had in Thailand, I came across for the first time an expression which maybe you've heard of uh, before, uh, third culture kids, uh, friends who were acting as uh, dormitory parents for children uh, <coughs> were at a missionary conference and uh, they were referred to as third culture kids. And the, the idea is that there are children uh, who've never experienced the culture of their parents uh, who've been brought up in maybe one or even two different cultures from that of their parents. And it can be very disorientating for them. Sometimes they don't know where they really belong. Sometimes they find it difficult to get along with people from their own ethnic group. Uh, it's a kind of sad uh, situation. But there are peoples uh, for whom there is such a strong sense of heritage, uh, where the culture of the home, where attachment to language and to land uh, and so on is strong enough uh, to bridge generations of a separation from the homeland. And such it was with the people of God. Uh, they would live in a foreign land, uh, looking to a land very far from them as home. And Joseph, uh, when he dies, and he dies, the younger brother before his elders, uh, and he's coming near the end, he proclaims to them the future victory of God. He says, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph uh, is speaking about the Exodus event. He's speaking about the future redemption of God's people. He's speaking about the time when God will come and will redeem a people at the price of blood. When lambs will be slain, blood will be daubed on the lintel and the doorposts, and the angel of death will pass over. The future redemptive act of God in Egypt. And again, uh, he shows his confidence uh, in the promises of God uh, by giving instructions regarding his bones that they're to be taken to Canaan. When the writer to the Hebrews comes to Joseph, this is the event that he remarks upon. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. And Joseph was embalmed, and they placed him in a coffin. And that coffin remained uh, in Egypt until a great moment of exodus came. And then it was taken amidst the great crowd that left Egypt, taken down up into Canaan. And the word coffin that's used here is interesting. Not only is it the first mention of coffin in the Bible, but the word is literally ark. Joseph's body was laid in an ark, and the people took his bones in an ark up to Canaan. And so when the children of Israel were traveling from Egypt to Canaan, there were two arks. One had the 
bones of Joseph, and the other had the two tablets of stone written on by the finger of God. It's interesting. And one Jewish commentator writes this. All this time in the desert, Israel carried two shrines with them, the one in the coffin containing the bones of the dead man Joseph, and the other ark containing the covenant of the living God. The wayfarers who saw the, respect, the, the receptacles wondered, and they would ask, How doth the ark of the dead come next to the ark of the ever-living? The answer was, The dead man enshrined in the one fulfilled the commandments enshrined in the other. What do you think of that? That's a very Jewish comment, isn't it? Because clearly the one contained in that ark had never kept the commandments of God fully. There is only one who has ever kept the law of God perfectly. But the remarkable thing is that a death and the law on stone uh, is what the gospel is all about. We have broken the commandments, but we have a man now at God's right hand who was dead for us, who went to the cross of Calvary, who led a new exodus, not out of Egypt, but out of sin, the bondage of sin, uh, into his kingdom of light. And our, our sign, our symbol of hope, is not a coffin with bones, but an emptied tomb. He is no longer here. He is risen. That is our hope. A saviour who is mighty to save. Uh, a saviour who, just as Joseph, who is in so many ways a type of Christ, just as Joseph uh, was humbled, uh, was laid very low, we have a saviour who was laid in the dust of the earth. And who, just as Joseph before him, has now been exalted uh, to the position of supremacy. He is Lord of all. And as we come to the end of Joseph's story, and the end of Genesis, uh, the challenge to all of us uh, is to ask ourselves, do we know the Saviour to whom Joseph points us? The Saviour of whom Joseph in so many ways is a type. Do we know the one to whom Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were looking forward, straining, uh, seeing dimly the promise. We have uh, the fulfillment of that in Jesus. Uh, he has brought about that great deliverance from death. And if we trust him, if we commit our way to him, if we ask for his forgiveness that he has obtained at the cost of his lifeblood, we will be delivered. We will one day be with Joseph and the saints of the Old Testament in glory through the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for this wonderful book of Genesis. We bless you as the God who made the heaven and the earth. We bless you as the God who made man in your image and who, though man rebelled from the very beginning, in your counsels planned a way of redemption. We thank you for 
the example of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Grant, Lord, that we might live by faith as they did, and that we, by your grace, might end our days strong in the faith, holding on to the promises, looking forward to the resurrection of the dead, our great hope. Be with us, Lord, uh, in our parting. Be with us through the days of the coming week. Grant that those that meet us will know that we have been with Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to close uh, with the, the words of an old hymn. Uh, <coughs> reflect uh, the believers' belief in, in God's sovereignty over their lives. Put thou thy trust in God, in duty's path go on. Walk in his strength with faith and hope. So shall thy work be done. Commit thy ways to him, thy works into his hands. And rest on his unchanging word. Through heaven and earth command. Put thou thy trust in God. Spirit, rest upon you now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>